This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 217. Today we speak with Dr. Michael Kruger about the canon. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and this is episode number 217. We have another excellent program lined up for you today. Let me introduce to you today our panel. We have Jared Oliphant, who is Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary, but he is working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back to the program, Jared. It's good to have you. Thanks, Camden. Good to be here. Yeah, we've got uh, an experiment running where Jared is uh, online. We have his video feeding in, but uh, we're we're still testing things out. So this video may or may not be released, but we've got all the audio as we normally do. So bear with us as we try out some new things. Uh, And we're very excited uh, today to not only try out uh, some new technology here, but uh, to bring in a a new guest. And we're really excited to speak today to... Dr. Mike Kruger, who is one of the pastors at Uptown PCA in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as professor of New Testament and academic dean at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kruger. It's great to have you. Thanks, guys. Great to be on the show. Thanks. We, we're we excited. Uh, today we're going to be speaking about the canon. Uh, Dr. Kruger has a, a great new book uh, coming out, uh, or, or it's already out. I'm, I'm unaware from, from Crossway. Jared, is it available already? No, it's kind of, I think, uh, Mike, was it March or April that you were saying? April is the projected date. That's right. You know how those, goes, how those things go with publishers, but uh, we're yeah. hoping for April. Yeah, from Crossway, yeah. Sure. Well, it's going to be an excellent book, but this is a very important topic, uh, speaking about the canon, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, I need to pause and uh, mention that Christ the Center, of course, as I start every episode, but it's this important, is Christ the Center is listener-supported. And if you're interested in what we do and you've, you've derived some benefit, please visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of these programs free of charge. We really enjoy doing it, but we need your help to continue to do it. And uh, we've got some exciting times on our hands with this new year, some new technology, and we're going to try to expand our our offerings and provide better resources for all the listeners and viewers uh, in the future. So visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate today. And we want to thank everybody for their support of Reformed Forum and uh, this particular program, Christ the Center. Uh, Jared, we uh, why don't you give us a little background here? Now, Dr. Kruger and you have uh, some personal uh, correspondence, uh, so maybe we should uh, lay a bit of a foundation before we get into our excellent topic today. Sure. Yeah, just a, a personal note. Uh, Dr. Kruger, well, let me back up. Some listeners may know that I just recently moved to the Charlotte area in May, and um, we, my wife and I, my uh, new wife and I started uh, searching for churches and went to a number of them. And um, Uptown PCA was one of the churches that we visited. And through that, uh, got to know Mike a little bit. And he invited to us to a life group uh, that he hosts at, at his own house. He and his wife, Melissa, are very kind to host a life group every Sunday evening. And through that, um, since September or so, they've been working through the Westminster Confession. 
And um, so I've just gotten to know Mike a little bit through that. And, uh, of course, we have uh, good seminary-style nerdy conversations <laughs> that are, uh, you know, a blessing to me. Um, probably a curse to him, but a blessing to me. And uh, so anyway, that's the personal connection. I'm, I'm happy to be there, uh, part of that. And Mike has done a really good job leading us through a lot of those things with a, a good amount of people there at the church. And he's one of the pastors there as well, as I think mm. you said, Camden. That's great. And that reminds us a little bit of our episode uh, last week when we talked about the pastor is scholar and the scholar is yeah. pastor. So, Mike, it's great to have uh, one of those on the program <laughs> to discuss <laughs> somebody who, who not only has experience, but also uh, week-to-week responsibilities, both in the church and, and the academy. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're uh, big time excited. Yeah, glad to be on the show. And, and uh, being in both the church and academy is a it's a, it's a great experience to have a foot in each world, and, and yeah. I think those are the two worlds that uh, God calls us to be in. So Yeah, I agree. I agree. We spoke about that last week, and we hopefully can carry that on today as we talk about our subject. Uh, the book here in front of us, uh, the one for our discussion today, is Canon Revisited. I mentioned it is from Crossway, uh, and it's a fresh take, a, a new look, an up-to-date look at some of the issues uh, in canonical studies. When we talk about the canon, we're talking about uh, the books that have been uh, inspired by God and have been compiled together into the Bible that we have. But there's all sorts of questions and uh, and different arguments and, and different scholarship that's come up recently, different views about the Bible, inspiration, the community, etc., that come into play, that this is a very important topic because we're speaking about God's Word and uh, what is God's word, uh, Mike. As as you prepared to write this book, uh, what were some of the um, contextual issues going on, and 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 both in the church and the academy that you thought were important, and uh, for which you decided to write this book? Yeah, well, one of the major motivations uh, stemmed from actually teaching a, a elective here at RTS on canon, which I've taught for a number of years. And one of the things you do whenever you teach an elective is come up with a list of required textbooks. And uh, one of the challenges I, I uh, faced was I, I had no textbook on canon that I felt really addressed all the critical questions. Um, uh, as you well know, there's sort of two kinds of textbooks out there. There's the what I call data textbooks along the lines of Metzger and Bruce, which are mm-hmm. very good at giving you all the information, all the data points about uh, how books were mm-hmm. received within early Christianity and the various patristic testimony that helps us see how uh, things developed. And then you have sort of the theology side of canon, which really Ritterboss's little book is really one of the few places to go uh, to get that. But there was no volume that sort of combined the two, that looked at the historical evidence through the lens of of a uh, reformed and redemptive historical approach to canon. And so part of the rationale for this book was to try to unite the theology of canon and the data of canon in one volume, which may be a bit of an ambitious undertaking, but uh, that was at least the intent. Hmm. Now, have, have you uh, done some other type work on, on the canon? I, I see that you uh, also uh, did a lecture last summer's PCAGA. Was that related to uh, to the book and these subjects? Yeah, that's actually related to another book I've got coming out on canon within our varsity. Mm. Uh, that lecture at General Assembly was uh, designed to interface with sort of modern tenets of canonical studies and critical scholarships. So what I did in that that lecture uh, is go through five major tenets of, of critical approaches to canon and respond to each one of them and show how uh, they're flawed or mistaken. Hmm. And so that was designed to sort of help pastors, other TEs and REs, and even laymen think through canon in terms of the critical stuff trickling down to them. 
And that'll that's sort of the basis for a, another volume, like I said, with InterVarsity that'll probably be out uh, sometime in 2013, I would imagine. Hmm. That sounds excellent. Yeah, and for, to, just sorry, to mention, for, for those who weren't able to hear that lecture, uh, it's going to be published actually in an upcoming book uh, edited by David Garner. And I think you know the book is called uh, Did God Really Say? And it has that's really just going to be a collection of um, those lectures that were going on last year in General Assembly. So it includes Vern Poitras and uh, John Frame and a few others uh, on doctrine of scripture issues. And I think uh, I have it here. Your, yours is called Deconstructing Canon, Recent Challenges to the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Writings. Um, and it was, a, it was a packed house. I was there. I actually did not get to hear the lecture because the room was so full. So I'm looking forward to that. Mm. Yeah, that was a that was a fun uh, occasion. I enjoyed being there. I particularly like doing that at places like GA, where I feel like the audience is is really interested in learning how they can better defend the canon. And uh, it was it was a fun Q and A afterwards as well. Yeah. Now, uh, probably the most frequent question uh, related to the canon is whether we can trust that the collections of books that we have now are the the right ones to be there. There's even differences between. Protestants and Catholics about that, even within the the very broad Christian tradition. Um, You know, how do we go about deciding and and understanding which books to accept as the community of faith and which books are really not inspired and not there? Books like Third Corinthians. I've I've been to Barnes and Noble and found you know the Gospel of Thomas or even Q which wasn't a book in the first place, but yet you can buy it. Uh, how, uh, how do we, uh, um, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Uh, it's, it's a scholarly construction. Uh, but how do we go about this process generally? I mean, it's a wide open question. I know it's a difficult one, but, uh, I'm sure many listeners are just wondering how, uh, how the canon was formed and how do we, what, what types of, of, uh, criteria do we have when we come to, to ask the question, what is God's word and where is it? Yeah, well, that is the question, isn't it? In fact, that's the the very question that my entire book is designed to answer, which Mm -hmm. is how do Christians know uh, with any real certainty that the books that we have are the right ones? Or another way to say it is that does Christianity have a reasonable basis for thinking it can know which books are the right ones? Um, And so I work through that book as as, uh, obviously it's a very large question. I work in that book through answering that question and and talking about how uh, Christianity does provide a basis for knowing which uh, books are in the canon so that we as Christians can be assured of that. Now, that's there's a long answer to that question, but I can give you a few little tidbit highlights yeah. of sort of of uh, the model that I've put together. Uh, in essence, the model has three parts. Um, let me just say a quick word about each. The first part is what I call providential exposure. Hmm. What I argue for there is that the Bible gives us good reasons to think that if God wanted his church to have certain books as canon, that he would make sure they were preserved and exposed to the church so they could recognize them rightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way to, to, to say that is that uh, if God intended a book to be canonical, we have no reason to think it would be lost. We have every reason to think that God would preserve that book so the church was aware of it and could therefore recognize it as Scripture. Um, and I'll come back to that, that tenet in a minute. The second uh, part of the model that I bring up in the book is what I call attributes of canonicity, which is, uh, I think indications we get from the Bible about what canonical books are like, or another way to say it, what attributes they possess. And I go through the book on what those various attributes are, and again, I'm sure you'll want to probe further into that. And then the third part of the model, which of course is very critical, is the role of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Uh, even if 
canonical books have the attributes uh, of canonical books, um, how is it that people can recognize those attributes? And why is it that not everyone does? Well, obviously, the main answer, of course, is, is the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, and in particular, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, designed to help open our eyes to see what's objectively there about these books. So those are the uh, three components of the model. And so the whole book is designed to answer an epistemological question, a question is how, of how we know, or maybe better put, how do we even have a basis for knowing uh, within the Christian system which books are from God and which aren't. It strikes me that this is connected to so many other areas, um, especially like we mentioned, doctrine of scripture. So inspiration is connected. And, you know, probably one of the things that at least I've heard um, brought up uh, just in terms of canonicity is, you know, in Colossians 4.16, you have another epistle by Paul that he wrote to Laodicea. You have another Corinthian epistle. And so it's often, you know, wondered... What's, you know, if we were to find that and, you know, maybe there would we have to change certain fundamental parts of our theology? And this is all speculation, but I think there's a general fear, fear out there that um, because there's uncertainty uh, of what was going on, or at least some level of uncertainty of what was going on 2,000 years ago, what implications does that uncertainty have for how we see our books of the Bible and maybe what we don't have, too, Um you know, at least at the college level, when I was trying to talk through these things, a lot of college students are, are working through this, and I'm sure a lot of people in the church as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a very common question. What about the other apostolic books? Um, you know, Third Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans, and so forth. Um, and, and that's a very common question. This is uh, addressed in the model, as you may have picked up a moment ago, where I start dealing with what I called providential exposure. One of the things I argued for there is that we have good biblical reasons for thinking that God would preserve books that he intended for his church to have. Um, now, if that's true, then obviously books that were once used and written by the apostles that weren't preserved, that the church wasn't corporately exposed to, but only were known in a very limited duration of time or to a, a very small group of people, would therefore be books that we would argue God never intended to be canonical in the first place. Now, if that's a, a, a fair way to address the question, then what that does is it eliminates um, those other apostolic books from, from the discussion. Um, and what I mean by eliminates is, um, is to say it a different way, is that the church can only authenticate books it has. Um, there's no way it can recognize mm -hmm. books it doesn't have. It's only, it can only authenticate books it has access to or exposure to. And so as interesting as the question might be, what if we actually had another one of these books the fact is we don't, and so the, the question of authenticating canon really can only deal with books we actually possess, whether it be Thomas or Barnabas or the Gospel of John or whatever it happens to be. And so what I argue, therefore, is that any authentication model for canon really doesn't address or cannot address uh, books that were lost because by virtue of the fact that we cannot have access to them or know how to authenticate them. Um, and so I think in one sense, then, lost apostolic books are a bit of a a bit of a red herring. Uh, what I mean by that is that it's an interesting question to ask, but I don't think it's really relevant for the question of how we authenticate books, because we simply don't possess those books. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't make any sense to, to try to understand or develop a criteria for something that we can't even look at or read. And you got to think that this is difficult, because uh, clearly the, the apostles wrote you know, Paul in his lifetime, even after his Damascus Road experience, would have written many things that <laughs> were lost in, in antiquity. And so it's not Absolutely. unusual for us to think of some correspondence that Paul had with the church. 
uh, that could bring up all sorts of other questions related to inspiration and his office as apostle and the status of those letters and, and et cetera. But the fact of the matter is what we have in front of us is, uh, in, in our understanding is, is God's inspired word. And, uh, for, for one reason or another, that's what God has given to us for our benefit. And, uh, he has not given us other things that they've, that they've written. Um, what was the status of of these letters uh, at the time of the early church? What 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 were what were people who were receiving these letters thinking, perhaps, or, or how might we go? What's the testimony about these letters uh, closer to the time that Paul actually was living? Uh, referring to the lost letters? No, just any letters in general. If Paul sends the church a letter, I mean, do, do speak about we have uh, testimony in Acts and stuff about. Uh, uh, the church is receiving the letters uh, with yes. great joy, etc. Uh-huh. But what what I'm trying to get at what was the general uh, tenor of the church at that time, uh, or is this idea of inspiration and authority and canon something that comes up as a historical development later? No, that's a very good question. In fact, one of the chapters in my book, I think it's maybe chapter five, deals directly with this question of whether the idea of canon is an after the fact ecclesiastical development mm. that is really a product of church history yeah. um, instead of redemptive history. And one of the arguments I make is that the idea of canon is really a, a first century phenomenon. It's a, it's a biblical um, redemptive historical phenomenon that was not created and then retroactively imposed upon books written for another purpose, but was inherent to those books. And getting to the, the heart of that is really uh, understanding the way letters were written and received in the ancient world by apostles, as your question indicated. When Paul wrote a letter, he viewed that letter as an extension of his apostolic office. In other words, he wrote those letters in his role as an apostle. Mm. And therefore, if his apostolic office bore the authority of Christ, then his letters would have borne the authority of Christ. And in fact, Paul made it clear that they did, in fact, bear the authority of Christ, when in those very letters he often makes it clear that he speaks for Christ, that he speaks for the Lord, that his words are God's words, etc., uh, so that the letters he writes bear the highest authority one can possibly put on any book which is really the authority equivalent to Scripture. Uh, The fact that Paul then not only writes with that authority makes clear that his audience understands that authority, but then Paul also asks that his letters be read publicly in the church Hmm. and read publicly to other churches, which is a very common thing in the ancient world that would happen in the synagogues. When you'd have public reading in the synagogues, and obviously first-century Judaism, that's what you did with Scripture. And so Paul writing uh, to a first-century audience, some of them Jews, some of them maybe not, uh, would have certainly recognized that to read a book publicly in the worship service, particularly when it's associated with the authority of an apostle, would have made that book one of the highest valued books that one could have, and certainly on par with any Old Testament writing. Hmm. And so, so there is uh, this this understanding that these are just no ordinary letters. There's there's a height a heightened authority and understanding, uh, even within the church uh, in the first century, that these are much more than just human writings. I think so. In fact, it's unfortunate that scholars spend so much time downplaying this. In fact, in the article that was mentioned a moment ago by Jared uh, that's coming out in this uh, volume from the General Assembly Lectures, I make a point there to deal with this issue and talk about how um, even though these letters are occasional, that's not an indication that they were not to be seen as scriptural. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes we get this impression that when Paul wrote, he was just sort of writing a letter to another congregation not aware of any authority, not intending any authority. And it's only later when churches really started to use and value these letters that they started attaching scriptural authority to them. Um, I challenge that head on. I think that's entirely mistaken. And in fact, 
reverses uh, the, the way these things actually work. Um, things did not get written down with no authority and only gained authority later. Mm. I would argue they actually had authority before they were written down by virtue <laughs> of being the apostolic message. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that when they were written down, of course, they just maintained the same authority they already had, mm -hmm. uh, which is the authority of the apostle. Hmm. That's that's an important hermeneutical point, isn't it? Because it just, as you're just describing, it, it's not as if um, these letters were solely written to a particular context, which they were, and then later the transcendent aspect of it, you know, an application to our lives and all those other things that that aren't necessarily in the particular church context to which it was written. That the transcendence, um, and you know, if you want to say objectivity, in some cases, was inherent. While Paul was writing, and you have, you know, I see in the table of contents a whole section on self-authenticating and, and how those things yeah. um, play into each other. But there's a lot more going on there than just a letter to a congregation and then, uh, you know, the church kind of taking it up into its own causes and purposes, right? Oh, yes. Uh, I think that they would have received these letters from the outset as divine speaking, um, that Paul spoke for Christ, therefore Christ is speaking in the letter. Therefore, the letters were highly valued. Therefore, the letters were copied and preserved. Um, and, and, and that's why we have them in our New Testament canon today. So, you know, I always try to deal with the, the sort of common conception that it wasn't until, say, late second, early third century that a bunch of guys got together in a room somewhere and said, hey, you know, yeah. it would be a real good idea if we had a canon. Dan Brown, um, all, Dan Brown you know, type thing. <laughs> yeah, these heretics are causing a lot of trouble and they're, they're kind of getting on our nerves. So let's, let's put something together to respond to them. Yeah. Um, this is sort of the, the the standard sort of you know Adolf von Harnack and Kampenhausen's view mm -hmm. of Marcion, right? That the mm -hmm. canon wasn't an idea until Marcion came around, uh, put his own heretical canon together, and then the church sort of woke up out of its doldrums and said, "Oh wait, you know we need something more than oral tradition. We need a written document. So let's mm -hmm. let's let's collect those." And that I think is just way late. Uh, it's 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 uh, acting like the church's is reacting to things rather than um, building on a foundation laid by the apostles. Yeah, so we sp you speak about that foundation, uh, you know, for people who'd like some textual warrant, we can look at places like Ephesians 2.20 and, and, and those sorts of things. But um, there there is some measure, uh, I want to use this word carefully so as not to confuse, I'll let you clean up my mess. <laughs> there is some measure of flux, because Books were written before other books. So there, there is some sure. measure of development and process. There is some measure of, of the community recognizing it, so to speak. Um, you know, and we can look in history and we can find out what books were included in certain codices and, or, or collections of scrolls, etc. Um, what did that process look like and um, how, how does that come to influence our understanding of the canon and how it took shape? Yeah, you made a very uh, important point there, which is uh, there was a, there was a uh, fluid situation in early Christianity in terms of the reception of these books, and th there's no doubt that's true. And I think the critical distinction to make is uh, a distinction between the intent with which books were written and the manner in which they were received. Mm. Um, what we want to argue for is that they were written with the intent of being Scripture. Paul was very aware of his authority when he wrote. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was no mystery about that. And even though his intent was clear in his own mind, uh, no doubt that that doesn't mean that reception was automatic, uniform, and 100% out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Obviously, some churches would have received it uh, readily. Others would not have. Um, and the reasons for that are obvious, which is that letters, as you know, they were written at different times by different authors in different locales. Uh, they were not made aware. Different parts of the church were not made aware of these letters mm -hmm. all at the same time. And so there was a process, an historical process, by which 
people became aware of books, recognized those books, and received those books. Um, but of course, that doesn't change the intent with which they were written, and I no. think that distinction uh, is important to maintain. Now, as far as the reception of these books, um, you know, in an overly simplified fashion, I think you can look at it in two stages. And stage one would be that a very early point, in fact, as early as we can absolutely look back with the historical documents we have, as far back as we can go, we see that there is a core New Testament canon in place from the very start. Mm. And when I say core, I mean really the four Gospels, the letters of Paul, and a few other books. Now, the other books, what we might use the term peripheral books here, and I don't mean that in a, in a sense of their inspiration. I mean that in a sense of uh, their centrality life of the church. The peripheral books took a little longer. Um, So there was a core in place from the very outset, but then there were some books, 2 Peter, even to some extent James and Jude, and maybe Revelation, that took a little bit longer for the dust to settle. And so you can really think of the the, the reception of the canon in two stages. One was a very early core reception, and then a longer drawn-out process around the peripheral books. I see. That's that's helpful. And and not only are we talking about reception in in different... uh, um, times and a development of process and, and also the community recognition. But going back to the point of self-authentication, we have authors recognizing the works of other authors, for instance, uh, Peter and Paul, uh, speaking of each other, yeah. uh, in, within Scripture. Um, how do we yeah, treat... Right. The, exactly. How do we treat those things versus other references to... Ec- you know what is now extra biblical literature or references there's some there's some tricky ones in Jude mm-hmm. uh, and there's other references even Paul's quoting the uh, uh, pagan poets uh, how do we treat the idea of self-authentication within scripture to defend the can- canonicity of a work versus just reference to some sort of extra biblical literature yeah great question so when you think about the self-authentication of scripture itself there's there's two ways of looking at that one, one way is, what does Scripture say about itself, um, which is what you're alluding to here, uh, which is very, very important. And the other aspect of self-authentication is, what does Scripture demonstrate in terms of its own qualities? Oh, yes. And how do those qualities show us that it's the Word of God? Now, starting with the first one there, which is what Scripture actually says about itself, um, we might even use that, we might even use the phrase self-attestation there rather than self-authentication mm-hmm. if you want to split terms. Uh, but in terms of the Scripture self-attestation, what's interesting about it is whenever Scripture references something particularly as Scripture, we have no books ever referenced as Scripture that aren't currently in our canon. Now, this, is, I think, is a, is a very telling point. So whether they're citing the Old Testament books, yeah. or whether they're citing other, other New Testament books, Second Peter's example that, that you mentioned, mm-hmm. we have no example of another book or authority being cited as Scripture that's not currently in our canon. Now, we have other things being cited— um, obviously, a reference to Paul's uh, Acts 17, reference to ancient philosophers. We have citations of other uh, writings. We don't know where the quote comes from. <laughs> and we even have references to what looks like probably the Testament of Moses and maybe Enoch and Jude. But none of those are cited as Scripture. Um, and so I think what's interesting about the canon is when it comes to its own self-attestation, it's actually very consistent. Mm-hmm. The only things that get cited are Scripture. Are scripture. Um, now, I'll add one other, I think, forgotten text in the self-attestation category, besides 2 Peter 3.16, which is obviously a very important one, and that is yeah. 1 Timothy 5.18, which I think is largely overlooked. In fact, I've got a, an article in works right now on this passage that I think um, hopefully will bring some more attention to it. But mm. 1 Timothy 5.18, as you probably well know, is a citation there where uh, Paul not only cites an Old Testament passage, but then cites uh, uh, as Scripture the phrase, the worker deserves his wages, yeah. which 
is verbatim and in Greek only matches one of the known Greek texts anywhere, which is Luke 10, 7. Mm. Now, I think it's just interesting that he cites a writing, which is clearly a uh, saying of Jesus um, in the first century, which matches exactly and only with our Gospel of Luke. Um, I think that needs some more attention, too, as an intercanonical testimony. Wow, that's a fascinating point. You maybe have spilled your beans. We need to we need to hold some of this back so people will buy the journal when it comes. To- <laughs> <laughs> That's helpful. It's an interesting thing to pursue. Um, so the language there just mat- matches uh, with the Septuagint, or what does it match? Uh, uh, well, the citation in First Timothy five eighteen matches Luke Luke ten seven. You're right. Exactly. Right. That's fascinating. Uh, Refer to the Old Testament part. Uh. There's two citations in 1 Timothy 5.18. He quotes the Old Testament and right. the New Testament, both the Scripture there. Yeah, clearly. Is there any connection to the Septuagint in his Old Testament uh, quotation? Um, I can't remember if he's citing uh, the Septuagintal version there or whether it's uh, Masoretic. My guess is if it's Paul there, it's most likely Septuagint, but, yeah. but I don't recall off the top of my head. Mm. Well, that's interesting. We'll wait for that article to come out, and uh, and uh, we can talk about it at that point. That's fascinating. Um. So, Jared, what do, you, what do you want to hit up next? There's so many things to talk about. Yeah, um, just one probably, for me, last question on self-authenticating. I just um, For those who may wonder in their own minds, okay, if it's self-authenticating, uh, what do we do with you know uh, the Catholic Church and, and others who give a lot of credence to you know maybe some of those apocryphal works um you know is it do we just want to say that hey they just don't get it you know if they really saw it it would be there or you know have you in in speaking to these issues worked out a good answer to that that can add a little bit more nuance than you either get it or you don't yeah no that's a great point uh let me help you understand what i say in the book in regards to that the argument from the self-authentication of the canon is that those uh, with the Holy Spirit in them, uh, those who are true Christians uh, hear Christ's voice in these books, and that's how they know these books come from God. Yeah. Now, a couple of qualifications on that. Uh, just because the Spirit's at work uh, in Christians does not, therefore, mean that self-authentication is going to produce an automatic, 100%, no exception, uh, sort of canon right from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons is that the Holy Spirit can be resisted, uh, there's sin involved, there's people that can be deceived, and so forth. Um, so we're not expecting uh, 100%, you know, no exception type unity. What we would argue for is that the um, uh, self-authenticating nature of Scripture produces corporate or covenantal unity around these books, meaning that it's sufficient for accomplishing what God intends, which is that His church, His true church, as a collective whole, receives these books as God's Word. Which, when you look into the New Testament history, that's been the case. I mean, we have a remarkable unity around these 27 books in all branches of Christendom. Um, and uh, there's no real doubt that the corporate covenantal reception of these books is intact. And so a lot of people misunderstand self-authentication, meaning that no one can ever disagree or that there can ever be exceptions or pockets of, of disagreement, which isn't at all what the Reformers understood that to mean. They just meant that at the end of the day, the self-authenticating nature of Scripture will produce a corporate covenantal reception of God's books, mm. which is precisely what's happened. Now, in regard to the Apocrypha, uh, the Old Testament intertestamental, or the uh, intertestamental books uh, accepted by Roman Catholicism, there's sort of two ways to, I think, address that issue. One way to address that issue is to ask whether the Roman Catholic Church, when they accepted the Apocrypha, actually was the true church. Did they have the Holy Spirit actively working in them in a way that would allow them to hear Christ's voice in those books? 
Now, I think that's one possible uh, response, which is to argue that when Trent was produced, which is really the formal statement of this, uh, and even before that, that there's good reasons to doubt whether Rome retained uh, the status as a genuine true church and therefore would have been considered God's voice, or rather God's people to hear God's voice. Um, I think that's one response. Another response, I think, is to recognize that there was a corporate reception of the Old Testament books that preceded Rome, and namely by uh, the Old Testament church. Uh, the Old Testament church seemed to receive those uh, 39 books fairly clearly and fairly fully, and it wasn't really till uh, a later uh, corruption, if you will, uh, down the road that, that tainted that. So there's multiple ways to deal with that particular issue. Um, mm. But I think the main point to make is that self-authentication is not deemed to be this sort of uh, you know, magical thing that produces you know, uniformity across the board. What we would argue mm-hmm. is it just produces corporate reception or covenantal reception at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when I read Metzger, I really enjoyed it. I think almost all of my classmates did not. <laughs> it is a very detailed book. I mean, and it is incredibly I enjoyed useful. It. I'm with class- you. Okay. I wasn't a classmate with you. But no, yeah, but I, I, I get I it. Uh, you know, there, there, there's lengthy periods in which he talks about how paper is made or how ink was made and what ber- yeah. berries yeah. they used to, to make the ink, etc. Uh, and, and this are all just things that I never even thought about. And, and he's, he's re, uh, speaking of them in terms of textual transmission and whatnot, because all of these uh, features and, and factors that go into producing a written work uh, end up coming back around when we want to either recover it or preserve it. If the Bible was somehow inspired today, scholars a millennia from now would be studying, you know, the file systems we use on our Windows computers and how the bits worked and all that sort of thing in terms of textual transmission. But that's not the case. Uh, um, but could you let our listeners know a little bit about uh, just books and, and papyri and, uh, and um, scrolls and, and all the different ways in which God's Word had been written down in the past and, and how that might come into um, our idea of, of the canon or how the canon was, was transmitted because like a scroll, for instance, can only be so long. Uh, book, yeah. Books uh, can have certain, you know, et cetera. How, how did that, how does that all come into play? Great question. In fact, you've tapped into one of my favorite areas here. Um, and maybe you knew that maybe you didn't, which is uh, manuscripts and textual criticism. Mm. Uh, one of my, uh, well, my original uh, uh, PhD dissertation was on an ancient manuscript of an apocryphal gospel, mm. um, and it is uh, an area of, of keen interest for me uh, in, in terms of how these books are transmitted in the ancient world. Now, one of the things that I think is unfortunate in our modern days, you hinted at, is that most people have no real idea at all how the ancient uh, world worked in terms of books mm-hmm. and how uh, documents are transmitted. We're, we're concerned mainly in our modern day with the, with the text uh, itself. Um, which is fitting because we believe it's inspired, but we sort of regard the vehicle with which that text was born as sort of discardable, as sort of a, a husk, if you will, that you can just sort of yeah. uh, strip away and you just retain the, the seed inside. Um, but what, what I would argue for is that that supposedly disposable husk teaches us all kinds of things about the way these books were transmitted, how they were viewed, and how they were used in the ancient world. Um, and so the manuscript evidence is really critical uh, just as a as a additional uh, uh, note in my canon book that we're discussing, I devote a whole chapter to this. And I talk about how you can actually trace the development of the canon uh, by looking at how manuscripts were copied and received within yeah. early Christianity. Uh, one of the, the telltale marks of this is the way books were included in one manuscript, multiple books in a single manuscript, which tells you that those books were viewed as a unit 
or somehow related to each other. Um, mm-hmm. And what's curious about early Christianity is when you start seeing books grouped together, you see remarkable continuity around canonical boundaries. Uh, just for example, one of the things that people don't realize is that we never find our canonical gospels bound together with any apocryphal gospels anywhere ever in early Christianity. Wow. This wow. is a so like just a stunning observation. We find uh, copies of our canonical gospels in solo uh, units, meaning just mm-hmm. by themselves. Sure. But whenever they're joined with other gospels, it's always Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's it's never Matthew and Thomas. It's never Luke and Peter. It's never Edgerton two and John or anything like this. It never even once occurs anywhere in ancient history. And I think this is just noteworthy that oh, the apocryphal gospels were never linked with the canonical gospels in any physical manuscript. Yeah. Um, they're always deemed to be separate and 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 distinguishable. And I think that just gives us a very good insight in the way that can, the canon developed. That that is fascinating. Um, there's an extra wrinkle when we start to think of different versions of different books. Um, it may be an inconvenient thing to speak about sometimes for us uh, because these these questions are very difficult. But if there are different permutations of of a book like Jeremiah, for instance, or there are large portions missing in some manuscripts and other portions included in others. Uh, how do we understand that notion of textual transmission, manuscript uh, uh, criticism, etc., in relation to the canon? Which part or which version of Jeremiah, for instance, belongs in the canon? How do we go about understanding that? Yeah, great question. Um, what I would uh, do in, in this type of question is to separate canon questions from text-critical questions. Yeah, um, They're related, of course, but they are important to distinguish because the canon question is which books— and the text critical set question, as you noted rightly, is, well, which version of that book? Yeah. Once we determine which books are in the canon, then we can ask the question, what is the best manuscript, uh, or rather, what's the best edition mm-hmm. of that book that we possess? Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether it's Jer- Jeremiah, as you indicated, or say whether it's Revelation or, or Matthew in the New Testament, we want to ask the question, what's the most reliable text we have of that book now that we know it's canonical? Yeah. And this gets into the, into the world of textual criticism and how we reconstruct manuscripts over time. But one of the major points I try to make to people uh, is that our understanding of what a book contains is not dependent on a single manuscript. Any given manuscript can be either great or lousy, depending on the scribe and the situation under which it was produced. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we have lousy manuscripts of New Testament books. We have copies of the book of Acts that are terrible, where scribes leave out a whole bunch of things and add a bunch of things. And if that were the only manuscript we had at Acts, that would be a problem. But the good <laughs> news, of course, is we have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, and we have multiple manuscripts of the book of Acts. Some of them are actually quite good. And so whenever you reconstruct a text, you have to look at the collective tradition of the text, not any isolated instance of a poor copy. Um, and when you do that, actually, you can reconstruct the text pretty reliably, mm-hmm. even though some instances may be poor. You have other instances that are good. And when you put all your data together, you can reach really good conclusions about what the original text actually said. No, oh, that's that's helpful to parse those two disciplines out, but yet maintain that they're that they are related. But that's 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 hel- that's a very helpful clarification. Thanks, Jared. And yeah, just to piggyback on that, there was a well a two part video series on YouTube from Daniel Wallace. Uh, I'm not sure when he gave the lecture, but I saw it maybe a couple months ago was, or so. And was it he deals- just describing all the uses of the genitive? Did it take two videos? Uh, I don't remember that part. This oh. was more on. <laughs> Maybe I blanked out on that part. But Sorry. really, that um, what 
what I remember from that was uh, just how he was describing that maybe in the abstract, what some people would want is just this one pristine copy of Acts or whatever book, or even just the New Testament. And he said, actually, what we have are, you know, thousands of manuscripts that we can put together that actually confirm um, consistency across the board. So we have more confidence because we have such a, a multiple variety of things. And there are variations, of course, and you, we have to wrestle with those. But, you know, the consistency question isn't solved by just having one single manuscript found within history. And, you know, that would actually cause probably more uncertainty. So I thought that was a valid point as we're talking through these issues. Yeah, I think he gave those lectures at Biola University, actually. Okay. Um, I think yeah. there was a, a couple of days he gave them in their chapels, and then they put them on YouTube. And it's a very helpful overview of some of these, these same questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, just to continue, one, one question I had was um, what can we say about uh, marks of, of canonicity? And I know we've kind of been – that's been circling, but marks of canonicity and also – uh, maybe some of the kickback that you get when you're trying to deal with this issue on people who have kind of, um, you know, an empiricist model. Sorry, that's <laughs> my doorbell. Kind of an empiricist model of uh, what belongs and what doesn't, so that you can, you know, uh, figure this out uh, systematically and you know put something in a lab and then outspits your answer on what's you know canon and what's not. Um, how do we how do we find a balance between between those things? That's a great question. Yeah, whenever I talk about the self-authenticating nature of the Bible, I'm amazed at how many even Reformed Christians sort of balk at this idea. And in a, in a, in a very uh, sort of um, uh, you know, scientific and empirical age that we live in, hmm. where everything is supposed to be you know, purely objective and mathematically quantified, the idea of a self-attesting book seems radically subjective to people. Mm-hmm. And they think, wow, this isn't going to fly at all. Um, no one's gonna, no one's gonna buy that argument. That just seems like, uh, you know, uh, in-house sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I respond very quickly to them about that, and I said, well, look, you know, there is a subjective component to a self-attesting Bible because you have people recognizing it. Whenever you have people involved, there's always a subjective component. But that's not subjectivism. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we argue right. in self-authentication of the Bible is that there's objective qualities that are actually there, regardless of whether someone sees them or doesn't. Um, the fact that some people say they think the Bible's rubbish doesn't prove the Bible's rubbish. It just deals with the very question of what their uh, ability to perceive uh, the spiritual attributes of the Bible actually are. Can a non-Christian, with his eyes clouded by sin, accurately perceive what's actually there? Um, and the fact that he doesn't doesn't prove it's not there. It just simply proves what the Bible actually says about the non-Christian. And so there's a sense in which the rejection of the Bible by non-Christians is actually, ironically, proof of the Bible's own claims in the first place. Now, one of the examples I give in the book in this regard is actually a fascinating true story of, of uh, Joshua Bell. You probably don't even recognize that name. He's a violinist, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, very, very good. Yeah. Joshua Bell is maybe one of the world, world's finest violinists. They did an experiment a number of years ago in the subways of Washington, D.C., where they put him out there. You may have read about this. Yeah, it was fascinating. Post, yeah. Uh, uh, all day out there, and they wanted to see if the average person had an ear for good music, and whether they would stop and pay attention and drop money in his box and so forth. Right. Well, as you can imagine, the experiment was 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 uh, amazing, because basically he got no attention, no one ever, there was never a crowd, there was never any applause all day, he ended up with like a paltry $32 at the end of the day, and it, and it was rather embarrassing for a guy of that quality, who people would pay you know, $300 a ticket to go here uh-huh. um, in uh, uh, a place where they appreciated that kind of music. 
Now, if I went up to Joshua Bell after his hard day in the subways of Washington, D.C. and said, hey, well, you're ready to quit your career? Um, apparently, you don't know how to play music because masses of people think you're rubbish. Well, the response I'm sure Bell would give at that point is, well, I should only quit my career if I have a good reason to think they have an ear for good music. Um, yeah. If they could understand it when they hear it. Now, you put Bell before a bunch of professional musicians and they would appreciate what he's doing. And I think that's an illustration of the way the self-authenticating nature of the Bible works. Just because some people don't have an ear for good music doesn't mean mu good music doesn't exist. Um, some people are tone deaf um, and they don't know it when someone's on key or not. But that doesn't mean a thing called being on key is a, something made up by musical insiders. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's really there. Uh, and so this is part of the argument we give for the, the self-authenticating nature of the Bible. It's not subjectivism, even though there's a subjective component. And isn't it the case that, uh, you know, because it's God who's speaking and the very unique nature of that, that's not a formal structure that you can take abstract and apply elsewhere so that, you know, if I say something and say, well, you know, that this is self-authenticating, self you know, it, that doesn't really work. It's not, it's not God who's speaking at that point. So there's a character to the content that depends on who's saying it that, that you know, you just can't transpose to, you know, another form of communication. Yes. In fact, what I argue in the book is, is that when we talk about the internal attributes of Scripture that attest to its divinity, they're, they're, they, they reflect the attributes of God himself. In other words, the, the attributes we're talking about are divine ones. And so if God has an attribute, then his word has an attribute. Yeah. Um, and what I do in the book is I break down those attributes into three categories. Uh, and this is, by the way, right out of the Confession. The three categories for these internal attributes of Scripture are the beauty and excellency of Scripture. Mm -hmm. The second one is the efficacy and power of Scripture. And the third is the unity and harmony of Scripture. Now, if you think about all three of those categories, all three of those categories are what we could say about God. God is beautiful and excellent. God is powerful and efficacious. And God is unified and harmonious in what he says and what he does and who he is. And so we'd expect those same attributes to be uh, in the Scriptures. And then I go through in this chapter in the book and go through each one of those attributes I just mentioned and extrapolate what we're talking about and how that functions as a self-authenticating attribute of the Bible. Mm. That's incredible. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, how, how does this just relate generally to um, God's revelation? We, we've been speaking a lot about the canon uh, appropriately and talking about self-authentication, self-attestation. Uh, but, but a lot of times, uh, especially for Van, Vantillians, this self-authentication is, uh, is coming into use in apologetics. Um, how does this concept apply? I think it's just in line with what you just said, but how does it apply to just God's speech in general, whether that's, uh, or even in natural revelation, God, God reveals himself not only through his divine word, but also in the things that have been made. Um, yeah, that's an excellent question. In fact, when you look at uh, some of the Reformed formulations of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, it's actually predicated upon the self-authenticating nature of general revelation. Mm. So, for example, um, uh, John Murray, when he discusses this, he says basically, look, you know, if, if people know that God exists by his, his, his general revelation, how much, and they know it's from him, how much more would they know that his special revelation is from him by its own attributes? And so he talks about how uh, for example, creation testifies to the glory of God. Murray's argument is, look, when the, when the person looks at creation, it's got God's fingerprints all over it. You can't miss the fact that God is the author of that. Um, now, the, the non-Christian will deny it, he'll suppress it, but it's still obvious and it's still objective. He's the author, his fingerprints are all over it yeah. by virtue of the, the natural creation. Well, if that's true for, for general revelation, says Murray, then it's certainly true for special revelation. When someone looks at the Bible, God's fingerprints are all over it. His attributes are there. 
Now, of course, again, the non-Christian will suppress that and say, I don't see it. That's, that's not there. But that doesn't mean, again, it's not there. It just simply means, again, the non-Christian, without the help, help of the Holy Spirit, uh, will suppress that knowledge. And so he makes a very one-to-one correspondence between the two. And if you think about it, it just makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, if God's general revelation is evident that he's the author, why would not his special revelation be? Clearly, clearly. Because they're from yeah. the same God, the same triune God, and he reveals himself. And that's the thing that gets lost on, on a lot of progressive understandings of Scripture uh, or models that are coming along now, for instance, like an incarnational model. And 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 when you start to build a doctrine of Scripture uh, upon a, a theology or a Christology uh, that might have some lack or some problems in it, then naturally the, the the doctrine of Scripture is also going to suffer if we don't have the right foundation for the revelation uh, mm-hmm. and a foundation for what Scripture is in itself. No, that's right. In fact, what the point you're making, I think, is is a great one, because basically what you're saying is is that you you can't really defend the, the authenticity of Scripture until you know what, in fact, it is. Mm-hmm. And you can't know what it is without a good theological foundation. Which, right. ironically, of course, comes from Scripture. That's yeah. the, whole, um, the whole point of self-authentication. Right. But if you get your theology goofed up, then your authentication process is going to be goofed up, which yeah. is why I've really wanted to make this book be both about theology and history, because you cannot have a book on canon that solves the authentication question uh, just on an empirical basis only. It has to be mm-hmm. theologically grounded. Indeed. There has to be a theology of canon linked with uh, the data of canon. Yeah. And those two uh, really need to be joined. And that, that again, was uh, the whole intent of my book, is that if Christians are going to have assurance of the canon, they've got to have an idea of what God is like and how he reveals himself, and that just requires good theology. And so I think, as you said, you can't have a, you can't have a, a, a right view of Scripture unless you have a good theology undergirding it. Mm. Let's talk a little bit in, the, in our remaining time about some of the contemporary I don't know, competitors to a proper doctrine of, of the canon, a proper doctrine of Scripture. What are some popular books out there? I, I'm thinking, for instance, one author, Bart Ehrman, for instance. Um, what are what are some uh, books that are challenging this idea, and uh, how much attention have they received? And if, if any, why? Why are they getting attention now? Yeah, well, I think you mentioned sort of one of the main players here, which, which is Bart Ehrman. Uh, he's written a whole lot on canon. Uh, amongst other things. Uh, his view is a fascinating view that uh, I actually tackled in a prior book called The Heresy of Orthodoxy yeah, um, that I co-authored that. with mm-hmm. uh, Andreas Kostenberger. And in that book, we, we challenged uh, Ehrman's reconstruction of early Christianity, particularly his view of the canon. Um, but in that book, he argues that the canon is just simply the product of church politics, so to speak. Um, in other words, uh, Christianity, in Ehrman's mind, was just a, a theological mess. No one agreed on anything. Everyone disagreed. There was factions all over the place fighting it out for who was going to win. Uh, there was no Christianity. There's only Christianity's plural. Uh, it wasn't until much later, say the 4th century, that someone finally prevailed in that fight, and it's the group that prevailed that chose the books that it preferred. So this is the rewriting of canonical history uh, according to Bart Ehrman. Therefore, the canon that you and I possess today is simply the preferences of the theological winners. It doesn't yep. represent anything unique, or doesn't represent anything that goes back to Jesus. It just represents a group of people that won the theological wars in the books they happen to like. Hmm. Now, if that's the view of canon that one holds, and you can see why it would have zero authority. Um, but it, that's the view that is very popular today, and that's, of course, why uh, Andreas and I wrote that book. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's a challenging thing, and and especially we have a lot of pastors and theologically educated people that listen, and I'm sure these are just questions that come up often. Have you found that to be the case in your experience in the church, that people have questions? People have general good, faithful intuitions, uh, but do they come to you often with questions about the canon? Maybe, Maybe after hearing some sort of news report on NPR or something? Oh, yes. It's it's extremely common. In fact, of all the apologetic questions I get, the issue of how the Bible came together and who wrote the Bible and how the books were picked ranked at the very top. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and and it's because of writings like Urban that are so popular. And even we can think back even to, you know, 2005, 2006 with the whole Da Vinci Code phenomenon. Yeah. It's the same idea. Uh, people read or get popular level accounts of the canon, and it all looks like a big conspiracy. Uh, to pick certain books and not others, and some books were suppressed uh, and left out, uh, and and people like a good conspiracy theory. And so you really have to, even in the church, work very hard to sort of uh, uh, help people understand how to really think about canonical history. Yeah, yeah. Well, I very much thank you for for this book and for this attention. Jared, do you have any follow-up questions? Uh, no, I'm sure I, I will think of some, but that hit the main ones, and I uh, really want to thank Mike for a, an in-depth analysis. I certainly learned a lot, and um, yeah, love, love discussing it with you, Mike. Oh, Thanks. absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm sure we can continue this. Uh, we we don't do as, as much uh, biblical studies and definitely not, uh, you know, uh, what is it? The general introduction to the biblical studies uh, that that we that we should. But this has been an incredibly helpful episode. So thanks for taking the time. Great, enjoyed the conversation. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, the book, of course, from Crossway, Canon Revisited: Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books. Uh, look for that soon. We'll definitely promote it when it comes out. It should be on the website, uh, but. I'm sure many different bookstores will be carrying that, and it's going to be well worth the read because they're very difficult yet common questions, as as Mike has already alluded to and, and spoken about. Very important things because uh, the church is founded uh, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and how do we know what they said and uh, what God has for us today? But by reading and internalizing and understanding and praying over his word. And so the very question of, of where is his word, what is it, is is at the very center of who we are as the very people of God, the very body of Christ. So check that out. Canon Revisited from Crossway uh, by Dr. Michael Kruger. Of course, you can visit uh, respective seminaries online that are represented today, rts.edu. You can visit them for all sorts of uh, information about degree programs and different opportunities. Uh, um, Mike, um, uh, just maybe for a real quick uh, plug, you're in the Charlotte campus, but uh, could you let people know about the different campuses and different offerings, even even through the virtual campus? Yeah, um, RTS is kind of a complex entity, but uh, we have lots of campuses. <laughs> not simple. Um, yeah, it's not simple. Uh, we have sort of three main campuses, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Um, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Jackson, Mississippi and Orlando, Florida. Yeah. And then we have uh, our newer campuses in uh, Washington, D.C. and Atlanta. Uh, we've started uh, uh, our most recent campus now in Houston, Texas. And then, of course, we have our virtual degree program, which you can get 90% of an accredited MAR uh, through our virtual campus uh, off-site. So there's lots of different offerings within the RTS system. So hopefully um, 
uh, you know, those will meet needs of folks in, in different parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. And we've spoken to many of many of RTS's professors, and it's it's always a joy and a pleasure. So you can visit them online at rts.edu for more information. Of course, you can visit uh, Westminster Theological Seminary online at wts.edu. Uh, you'll find information about all of their programs as well, uh, different degree offerings, etc., new events coming up in the future, and that there are some conferences and things to keep your eye o- eyes open for. Uh, so visit them online at wts.edu. Reform Forum is available at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as how to subscribe and how to support us as well. And if you need to get a hold of us, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org or just tweet us at Reformed Forum. I want to thank everybody for listening and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>